Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Fight Toxic Prisons has asked for supporters to call the New Orleans ICE office and demand that immigrant detention centers take necessary precautions as Tropical Storm Ida bears down on Louisiana. Last year, detainees were left stranded without food, water, or medicine. New Orleans ICE can be reached at 504-599-7800. Prisoner advocates are demanding that President Biden take action to protect the 4,000-plus people, many of them elderly and immunocompromised, who were released from prison and sent to home confinement because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now the Federal Office of Legal Services has issued a mandate sending those people back to federal prison when the pandemic is declared over. Unless the Biden administration intervenes, Those thousands of people will be ripped from their homes and sent back to prison. Those are people who have been safely and successfully reconnecting with their families and reestablishing community ties, as evidenced by the 99% success rate of home confinement. Any circumstance where people are sent back to prison is in direct contradiction to the Biden administration's public promise to invest in ending mass incarceration. If the administration doesn't take measures to keep the thousands of people at home and out of prison, the administration will be presiding over the fastest expansion of the federal prison population in history. Louisiana rapper Corey Miller, known as Sea Murder, has begun a hunger strike at the Elaine Hunt Correctional Center in St. Gabriel Parish over concerns about COVID-19 and the status of his trial. Corey Miller's attorneys, Benjamin Crump and Ronald Haley Jr., state that the DOC and the prison warden are, quote, not enforcing the mask mandate, unquote, or requiring employees to get vaccinated. Miller is currently serving a life sentence without parole. In August of 2009, a jury voted 10-2 to convict him in the death of Stephen Thomas, who was shot and killed at the Platinum Club in Harvey, Louisiana, in 2002. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled non-unanimous jury verdicts are unconstitutional, but that same high court ruled the decision doesn't retroactively apply to this case, despite several key witnesses recanting their testimonies under oath. The family claims that the district attorney has evidence showing, quote, an illegal DNA cover-up that was not presented to Miller or his attorneys and only discovered after his post-conviction relief had already been filed. In addition to this cover-up, several of the state's key witnesses have since come forward and signed affidavits in defense of Miller's innocence, stating that they were forced by the police to give false information and to testify against him in court. Many witnesses at the scene have come forward stating that Miller was not the perpetrator of this crime. The Miller family statement also says inmates with terminal illnesses are not receiving proper care and are dying. Quote, There are many inmates that have ailments that were not properly treated and as a result have died after contracting the virus, end quote. And from Corey Miller, quote, 
I have seen many terminally ill inmates that have been put in front of the medical leave board to try and get a release to go home and spend their last days or months in the care and comfort of their family's home, only to get the runaround and pass away in prison while awaiting a decision. I know that it's time that I stand up, no matter how uncomfortable it makes my stay here." End quote. Kim Kardashian and many other celebrities have joined the fight to free the New Orleans rapper. He states, quote, half my life has been stolen by the Louisiana judicial system, and it stops now. As students around the country begin the new school year, some communities are reevaluating the need for police officers in schools. In recent decades, the percentages of schools across the nation with a police presence on campus increased from less than 1% to nearly 60%. Indiana doesn't disclose the number of police officers in schools, but in the last few years, between 900 and 1,200 students were arrested on school property. Daryl Heller, who directs the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center, points to data showing that black students are arrested at more than twice the rate of white students. Heller observes, quote, we know that black and brown students will get punished harsher and more frequently for exactly the same behaviors the white students do, end quote. He adds, this disparity often leads to criminalizing behaviors that are really just kids acting up. He's urging the South Bend School District to remove its five school police officers. In Heller's view, a new agreement between the district and police department is long overdue and could be an opportunity to put resources to better use. Heller went on to say that community members who want officers in schools might think their presence improves student safety, but research shows otherwise. Heller says, quote, We're willing to spend millions of dollars a year to pay police to be in our schools when we could actually be using that money to pay for more social workers or more restorative justice practitioners or others who I think would make our environment in schools much safer than a mere police presence, end quote. A bill in Congress, the Counseling Not Criminalization in Schools Act, would prohibit the use of federal funds for law enforcement officers in schools. Nationwide, over 14 million students attend schools that have police officers on duty. In Illinois, a video has leaked of a Stateville guard beating a prisoner. The attack, which happened in 2020, was unprovoked, and the guard, Chris Koziol, is now facing aggravated battery. Before the video reached YouTube, other guards circulated it for entertainment purposes, calling it a knockout video. We'll include a link to the video on our website, noting that it includes shocking violence. U.S. District Judge Miranda Dew struck down a nearly century-old immigration law as unconstitutional. The 1929 law made it a felony to re-enter the U.S. after being deported. In defense of Gustavo Carrillo Lopez, who was facing a two-year prison term for re-entering the states, lawyers argued successfully that the so-called Undesirable Aliens Act has racist anti-Mexican roots. Additionally, the defense cited racial slurs used by supporters of the bill in 1952 when the act was renewed. Congress renewed the bill despite President Truman's veto in protest of its racist character. During proceedings, the Justice Department argued that the Undesirable Aliens Act was necessary to prevent economic competition, uphold national security, 
and improve foreign relations. Judge Dew dismissed these arguments in part citing expert testimony from historian Lytel Hernandez on the racist history of the bill. Hernandez noted the racist context of economic competition throughout the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, including Bracero program migrant workers being routinely stripped and sprayed with DDT. In general, Dew stated that, quote, there has been no attempt to grapple with the racist history of the bill, end quote, and concluded that the bill was unconstitutional in violation of equal protection under the Fifth Amendment. Almost 800 people have been arrested during the indigenous-led struggle to stop Line 3 in Minnesota. Police have made arrests today, August 27th, while attempting to disperse an occupation camp set up in front of the state capitol. Earlier this week, St. Louis County, Minnesota police arrested 32 people, including several at a blockade at an Enbridge oil pump station. The St. Louis County Jail then refused to allow imprisoned protesters access to their prescription medications, endangering their health. Cognitive biases are unconscious beliefs people hold and inadvertent mental tendencies they have that can impact perception, memory, reasoning, and behavior, and can influence police investigators tasked with developing a suspect based on evidence. It's particularly evident with race. Racial biases, both individual and systemic, particularly anti-black bias, are woven throughout our criminal legal system. Those biases increase the risk of wrongful convictions and render the system unjust for all. At an individual level, for instance, such biases mean that black men are perceived as more threatening than white men and are treated accordingly by law enforcement. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, black people incarcerated for sexual assault are 3.5 times more likely to be innocent than white people. Black exonerees were also 60% more likely to be sentenced to life imprisonment than their white peers and spent an average of 4.4 years longer in prison before being exonerated. At a systems level, black and brown neighborhoods are more heavily policed because they are perceived as more dangerous. That means that the residents have disproportionate contact with the criminal legal system, and so their photos are more likely to be included in books of mugshots that are used to identify potential suspects. This fact ultimately increases their risk of being mistakenly picked out by an eyewitness for a crime they didn't commit. For our episode this week, we share the second part of a two-part conversation between Nicole Fleetwood and Nicole Siegel. Fleetwood's recent book, Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration, is a wide-ranging exploration of visual art made by people in prison. Fleetwood explains, quote, I started working on this book as a way to deal with the grief about so many of my relatives, neighbors, and childhood friends who were spending years, decades, or life sentences in prison. It was also an effort to connect with others who are separated from their loved ones by prisons, parole, policed streets, and other forms of institutional and quotidian violence." Unquote. In their conversation, they talk about the role of photography within the carceral system, which Fleetwood describes as the punitive image of the state. This emphasizes the negative dimensions of photography, especially the role of mugshots and its history of racist and repressive uses against marginalized people. But Fleetwood also speaks to its positive pull, which includes sharing photographs with loved ones who are inside. Here they are. 
I wanted to pursue visual culture, visual art for a few reasons. One, because yeah. you know this, that like prisons are all about contraband, you know, like about what you can't get, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. anything that's used that's in an unauthorized way be, can be labeled contraband or some mm -hmm. type of infraction. And visual art is all about, you know, like manipulating material. So for me, it was partly just like, I was so curious to like to learn about that. There's a history of, prison writing that, you know, there's entire semester long courses that are on literature of incarceration or literature right. of, of captivity. Um, Sharon Luke's beautiful book, The Life of Paper is just a, about the both symbol, the materiality and the symbolic weight of, of paper and, and writing epistolary forms and various forms of captivity. The, the whole idea of the penitentiary, like its origin was partly life narration. So it's about holding people in captivity and penitence, having them be in a space where they had to reflect on their quote, immoral, whatever doings. And it was a, about creating a new narrative of one's life. I wish I could remember the literary scholar who wrote really powerfully about thinking about that relationship to the kind of biographical work that's placed upon incarcerated people in, in the development of the novel, the form of the novel. Uh, Caleb Smith has written some about that in his mm -hmm. first book. And, and so in many ways, we're very familiar with the story of redemption or counter-redemption through prison writing. And I'm not making light of that. I mean, I've learned a lot from memoirs of people in prison, mm -hmm. but I'm just saying it's a, it's a kind of familiar genre of writing for folks who are familiar with prisons and or who are just like capacious readers. I think we have a very, very narrow idea about what art and craft looks like, you know, among incarcerated people. I had an inkling and I didn't know the depths of like how, that there was some kind of relationship between the museum and the prison when they started this project. Mm. And I really wanted to explore like those yeah. as two, the, two, these two foundational institutions of modern governance, of mm. disciplining. Well, golly, I can't leave that on the table. Tell us more. What do you think? What is the relationship between the museum and the prison? Especially in the United States, they're created around the same time. And they're often, mm -hmm. you know, especially around the time where there's this uh, real deliberate effort, uh, largely in, on, on East Coast cities like Philadelphia, to build buildings, institutions mm -hmm. of like modern governance, and that prisons and uh, museums were often not far apart. Mm -hmm. You know, now, now we think of prisons often as like far away out there, but often, you know, they'd be these really gothic buildings that were prominently placed in spaces for as, as a mode of self-discipline, you know, yeah. and museums were meant as a space that were of elevation where that people were supposed to aspire to and mimic the behaviors, right? So they're, right. It, they're these kind of twin pillars of co-creating an idea of a, a civic society. Photography, as you point out in the book, in Marking Time, is particularly problematic for incarcerated people because of its use as a technology of confinement, right? And mug shots are the quintessential example. So how did the artists you encountered repurpose photography? And, right. and how was their photography different than the way photography is used when it's a tool of surveillance and discipline? So what, what did the photographers that you focus on in this book do with the medium? People who are familiar with the history of photography, you know, as this, especially kind of mid 19th century, really innovative technology, will know that it was very quickly co-opted by 
by the government. At the time, it was considered, you know, as a scientific mode of, of documenting evidence, right? And that it was used very, very early on to criminalize and categorize populations. Right. Um, and so photography, if from its, you know, early, early stages is used by the state as a mode of disciplining, categorizing, criminalizing, and holding captive yeah. Um, populations and, you know, creating categories of the criminal in terms of the shape of the head that, you know, like literally using right. that technology and, and, and like Darwinian classificatory ways. And um, that use is ongoing in terms of, you know, surveillance cameras, police body cams, one had, I mean, crime scenes, digital te- and, and, and it's just gotten more intensify with the forms of digital technologies and like forms of digital policing right Right. and and predictive the whole idea of predictive policing right so how did the artists that you met through this project repurpose photography right so what i want to say is that in most prisons incarcerated people don't have licensed use of photographic technology but we do know that there are people their smart cell phones that are you know that some prisons are kind of flooded with them and I should say that they're brought in and sold by usually correct by prison guards right Right, so like most of the contraband that we find and that are found that's found in prison is brought in by actually people who work for prisons and who are part of you know like making money off of um, incarcerated people so in most prisons incarcerated people have very limited access to photographic technology. And if they do, it's usually through the prison visiting room. When a family member comes to visit, you can take a picture with them. And so that becomes a really important way of like documenting incarcerated people and their loved ones in the same space and time, no matter how temporary and fragmented that is. But it's like the only time in a 21 years that Alan was in prison, I had a photo with him was during a prison visit, right? So that was really important for me to think through that and what I call the hapticality of those images. A lot of us now consume photos on digitally on our phones or, or uh-huh. like it's still very common in prisons to print out these images, right? And to, to leave with an image of your, your loved one mm-hmm. or for incarcerated people. The only time I would actually print images in, in over two decades was when I was mailing them to incarcerated relatives. I would go to like, you know, a Walmart, you know, whatever, CVS or whatever to print these images because I, you know, I mean, some of that has changed through like now JPay and all these horrible forms vendors uh, to prisons that charge crazy amount of money to send images or emails. But then what I noticed through research and talking to incarcerated people is that portrait making is so it's probably the most common form of art making in U.S. prisons and it's part as completely to resist the mugshot or even the prison ID card that incarcerated mm-hmm. people have to walk around. They literally have to walk around with like a punitive image tethered to their body, mm-hmm. which is the prison ID card. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just like the kind of internalization, like literally wearing punishment, like your image as, you know, quote, offender, inmate, convict. Right. I, I, the, the weight of that violence, I don't, I don't think I can fully grasp. Mm-hmm. Right? But you can see it in the way that artists on the inside repurpose the portrait, not only the photographic portrait, but also the painted portrait. Absolutely. So 
it's a it's there's so much happening with portrait ma making so it's one is a refutation of that image of the the punitive image of the state it's um a way of again thinking about and documenting temporalities right because that image also that you're wearing it might be an image of you from 15 years ago right and so it's right. constantly it's also like you know a way of kind of for self-portraits it's, it's, it's definitely like self-documentation but I do think there's a powerful shift in terms of the weight that we give to the gaze and who's able to look and discern mm -hmm. and say what's of value that someone who's being who's being punished or being condemned or held captive take on the power and position of the person who's going to represent. You you write about it as a self-making strategy in the face of the violent dissolution of self that um, the state attempts via the prison. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, in in marking time you reproduce some of the portraits that people on the inside make and they are just stunningly beautiful. The art itself is really worth a look. I just want to encourage all the listeners to try and get their hands on a copy um, so they can see some of the gorgeous uh, art that's produced. And you, you not only reproduced the art in your book, but you've hosted and curated several exhibits, co-curated. I know you're gonna say, you're gonna say you did it in collaboration because that's such a critical part of your practice. Can you talk about some of the exhibits you've curated and co-curated, co-created? Yes, yeah, so, thank you. So there is Marking Time, um, Art and Age of Mass Incarceration that um, debuted at MoMA PS1 in September of 2020 and ran through um, April of this year. And what I, I'm so delighted that um, we were able to get funding support uh, partly through the Art for Justice Fund and then also my position at NYU mm -hmm. um, to travel the exhibition. And in September, mm -hmm. on September 17th of 2021, it's opening in Birmingham, Alabama. And I cannot tell you how meaningful that is for me to take it to Alabama mm -hmm. and to be um, working with a bunch of community partners there, some who've been doing, who have been involved in the long civil rights struggle. I mean, we have like 30 community partners there. Wow. Reentry groups, groups that are working currently through education and art in Alabama prisons, underground journalism. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just like, it's so incredibly meaningful. Um, and then from there, it's going to Cincinnati to the National underground railroad freedom center and again mm -hmm. an another very symbolic meaningful place because that mm -hmm. museum is a historic museum dedicated to the abolition of slavery and to have another kind of abolitionist project in that same space mm -hmm. with that you know thinking about that historical arc and the connections and disconnections I think would also is going to also be very meaningful and it's also my hometown and where and why and where I started this project seeing my mm -hmm relatives be hyper-incarcerated. The, the book closes by talking about your experiences of family portraiture of incarcerated and non-incarcerated people and um, including your family and its tradition of portraiture. And this section is just really, again, really beautiful and touching and devastating, but it's hopeful. And, and I want to ask, how did you come to understand the meanings that family portraits hold and and what do these kinds of photographs allow people to do and to imagine and to create among themselves 
Well, I was just, I was thinking about you saying it's hopeful. Cause also for me, it's like, I'm not someone who is, uh, who expresses emotions externally a lot. <laughs> I think people will say that I'm standoffish or, but I, I'm just like very interior, but uh -huh. working on that chapter, I was, you know, there are many times where my computer or paper was just saturated with tears. I mean, it was just like, mm. you say hopeful. And for me, it's a, it's like an incredibly sad, that yeah. uh, very, very sad chapter. But what I know to be true is that the history of black people on this continent has been the history of white supremacist projects trying to disrupt love and family and black folks creating radical forms of love, nonlinear kinship, community, and sustaining that. And so for me, this was a continuation of that. Yeah. Or, in, you know, it's, it's honoring that, that, that long history of Black folks loving each other, no matter what the state does to try to disrupt that. And that the state project of anti-Black genocide has not been successful. Exactly. That we are the past, present, and the future. This week marked the 51st anniversary of George Jackson's assassination by California guards on August 21st, 1971. To honor his legacy, we're closing the episode by broadcasting a selection of an interview with him. In it, he discusses forms of appropriate resistance, which we thought was an apt contribution to the Shut Em Down campaign currently underway and called for by Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. I think that any type of, uh, any type of uh, practice, any type of uh, mass action is uh, productive because uh, Remember, we were speaking of changing attitude. Uh, we were speaking of uh, objective and subjective conditions. Uh, uh, the fastest way to change any conditions that aren't correct, I believe, is with uh, trauma. <laughs> keep them in up for you need to keep things uh, disrupted. And uh, let, that, let that be the normal state of things, disruption. So I subscribe to all forms. <laughs> I support, I support, personally, I support all forms of disruption. But not at the same time, don't, don't, don't uh, get the mistaken idea that uh, I'm also subscribing to uh, apolitical, apolitical actions or apolitical activities, activities that don't have a clear-cut political purpose, that, that aren't working within a clear-cut political metric. Uh, but I, but I really, in my, in my wildest imagination, I, I can't see how any type of disruption in this country wouldn't fall within a, a purposeful political matter. <laughs> After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. Again, that's 765-343-6236.
This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of our archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.